Let's turn together to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. If you're following in the Pew Bibles, that's page 1064. John chapter 2, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 11. Very familiar story. The first miracle that Jesus did. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Anyone who has any interest at all in God Anyone who you would describe as having an interest in spirituality, even in its broadest form? Anyone who claims to be religious must at some stage in their lives, they must at some stage in their lives, ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus who did amazing things, allegedly, Who is this Jesus who claimed to be on a par with God? You see, Jesus claimed to be unique. He claimed to do unique things and to be on the same level as God the Creator. Now, you cannot dismiss Jesus, and we've said this before, you cannot dismiss him merely as a good teacher or even as a prophet because the things that he claimed and the things that he did were far more than you would expect from a prophet or a teacher. There is so much more going on with Jesus. Now, John, the writer of this gospel, was absolutely convinced that Jesus was unique. He was convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. And so in his gospel, he deliberately arranges all the material, all the stories he he knew about Jesus, and he had had witnessed with his own eyes. He arranges the material deliberately to keep before us every chapter Who is this Jesus? Who is this unique person? Now, John was writing, of course, mainly into a Jewish culture. 
a culture that was expecting a Messiah, a Savior. And every time John, his primary audience, his primary audience is his Jewish culture, but obviously we're, we're a secondary audience as we read it today. But he wanted to primarily show to this Jewish nation, this Jewish culture, that Jesus was the Savior, not only the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of the world. And so in this gospel from chapter 2 onwards, he begins to work through some uh, cultural institutions and religious institutions. And he he more or less says in each one, that institution is good, maybe even God-ordained, but Jesus is better. So he'll look at various uh, cultural institutions in the nation. He will look at wedding or marriages today. We're going to look at that. He looks at the Jewish temple. He looks at uh, rabbis or teachers of Israel. And then in chapter 4, he does something a little bit different, and he looks at one of the wells in the country. And each time, whether it's the, a wedding, whether it's a well, whether it's a temple, or whether it's a Jewish teacher, he says, that's good, but there's someone better. Jesus is better because Jesus is the creator. He is unique and he deserves your worship. So we're going to see three things today at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus is the best guest. He's the best guest. Now this event is only mentioned in John's gospel. You'll not find it in the other gospels. And Jesus and his mother and brothers are invited to a wedding. Perhaps it was the wedding of a friend, maybe a cousin, But anyway, the family were there. And weddings then, as now, were big events in the local community. The couple would have been betrothed or engaged for maybe up to a year. And on the wedding day, the bride would be escorted by her friends, and they would go to the groom's house. And then at the groom's house, a sacred formula was read, a document was signed, and they were declared to be married. And then the festivities would begin. Now, weddings in our culture are big things usually, uh, involve a lot of planning, and it usually involves the whole day. By the end of the day, everyone's exhausted. But weddings in the Jewish culture went on for a week, okay? So festivities went on, on average, for about a week. So imagine that bridegroom's fathers, groom's fathers and mothers, a week. And in this particular wedding, uh, the wine ran out. And this was, this was a, a, a massive thing. You know, imagine going to the, the reception at the hotel and they say, sorry, we haven't, we haven't ordered enough wine or we haven't ordered enough food, and half the guests are sitting there with nothing on their plates. This is, this is a shame honor thing. And in fact, in the Jewish culture, if the groom's parents did not provide enough, it was seen as something that you could be sued for by the bride's family. So that would be a good start to a marriage. The in-laws sue you. So this is a very real problem, a very big problem. And Mary, who maybe sees in Jesus someone who's a bit resourceful, she says to Jesus, Jesus, they've run out of wine. 
Can you do anything? Now, he hadn't done any miracles up to this stage. One wonders what Mary was thinking. Um, And then Jesus responds to her, and in the NIV, it says, uh, dear woman. He doesn't call her mother or mom. He says, dear woman. You know, why, why are you involving me? That sounds very cold, because Jesus is reaching the stage where he's, he's thinking about his greater plan, the, the, the work that he has come to do, which is to die for the sins of the world. And, and the timing of that is maybe just not quite there. And uh, Jesus says, uh, dear woman, or one commentator suggests that it could be translated the way Northern Irish people speak, woman dear. Woman dear, uh, why are you involving me? It's, it's not my time. This is not time to get involved in these sort of things. And what we're beginning to see here, perhaps, as he begins his public ministry, is that Jesus' relationship with his mother is changing. There's a little bit of a distance starting to open up between them. He's not, from now on, he's not necessarily going to be known as the son of Mary, but as the son of man. He's going to be known as the Savior of the world. So this relationship of mother and son is going to be changed into one of mother and savior. Things are going to start to change. Because Jesus is no ordinary person. And when we invite Jesus into our lives, he comes first and foremost as savior. And our relationships with Jesus begin to change just a little bit. And our relationships with our families even begin to change a little bit. Because Jesus comes in as a guest to our lives, and he begins to change things around a bit. And the spiritual connection that we have with Jesus begins to start to take supreme place over even our family, our blood relationship. So here we see a relationship beginning to change between Jesus and his mother. As Jesus becomes Savior, as Jesus becomes Lord. And whenever we invite Jesus Christ into our lives, things start to change, and his Holy Spirit begins to take up residence as guest in our lives. And again, priorities change. Now, some fear this, but actually, this is the best thing that can happen to us, because God and Jesus have made us, and they know what's best for us. And they know that whenever we invite Jesus as the guest into our lives, He satisfies us the most. He will satisfy us even more than our family relationships satisfy us, even more than our parents satisfy us, even more if we're married than our spouses will satisfy us. Jesus steps into this ordinary everyday wedding, and he totally transforms it. Every time I conduct a marriage or a wedding, and I give my address or I give my talk in the wedding, I'm, I'm always very careful to say, and I say this at every wedding, the best way you can have a successful marriage is by inviting Jesus Christ into the center of your marriage. The best advice I can give you today to have the best wedding and the best marriage is to have Jesus as the guest at your wedding and at your marriage for years and years to come. It's the best advice I can give you. Now, whether people take that advice or not, that's up to them. But certainly for Kay and myself, that's the best advice we can give to people. Invite Jesus Christ into your life, into your marriage, into your wedding. 
Invite Jesus Christ into your living room, into your kitchen. Yes, into your bedroom. Invite Jesus Christ into your bank accounts. Invite Jesus Christ into how you spend your leisure time. Invite Jesus Christ into your work and into your school and into your college. You invite Jesus Christ as the guest into your life and it is the best decision you will ever make. And he will satisfy you and he will lead you and he will guide you and direct you. He is the best guest in your life. And the second thing we see in this uh, story of Cana in Galilee is that Jesus is the best giver because Jesus heightens everything and Jesus brings quality to every relationship that he's in and everything that he does. In John 10 and 10, Jesus says, I have come to give life and to give it in abundance. Well, how do we know that, Jesus? How can we trust you, Jesus? You say you've come to give us life, life in abundance. How do we know that? Well, come to Cana in Galilee, where he's been at a wedding, a wedding where they run out of wine. And he says, I want you to fill six stone water jars. Now, these water jars are significant because ultimately what they're used for is for cleansing rituals or purification rituals. The Jews were greatly into cleansing, as we are, I suppose. So before you ate a meal, you had to go through this washing ritual. You not only cleansed all the utensils and the, the plates and so on, but you also washed your hands. Sometimes you would even wash your feet. So this water was provided for that sort of thing. It wasn't necessarily drinking water. It was just water for, for washing. And so Jesus says, see those six stone pots over there? I want you to fill them with water to the brim. And so they do that. And then this miracle happens. Each of these pots, each of these jars would have contained 20 to 30, in old money, gallons. I'm not sure what that is in liters, but 20 to 30 gallons, that's a lot. Each jar, 20 to 30 gallons of water. And in verse 9, we see that water is put in. And then in verse, uh, sorry, in verse 7, we have water in. And in verse 9, we have wine out. And not only wine, but good quality wine. And this wine is taken to the master of the banquet, and he tastes it, and he's surprised at the quality of the wine. Now, in that culture, uh, wine was watered down anything between a third to a tenth of the strength. They didn't take it neat, as it were. Now, you could still get drunk on it if you drank too much of it, but it was watered down. Now, we don't know if the water or the wine that was produced here was the watered-down version or whether it was the full-strength version, and they would have to say, right, we need to water this down. I don't know. It doesn't say. But whatever it was, the master of the ceremonies is blown away by this. He says, wow, this is, this is good stuff. Normally, people are given the choice wine, the best wine at the start, when their taste buds are kind of a bit more active, a bit more ready for it. After a while, they might get a little bit more inebriated. They maybe don't discern what's the best wine from the cheapest wine, so the, the cheapest wine is brought out later. But here, you've saved, <clears throat> pardon me, you've saved the best wine until last. So Jesus is the provider of abundance. He's the provider of quantity, but he's also the provider of quality. And in the Bible, wine is often used as a picture of blessing and joy. Just as Jesus 
transformed this wedding and he brought joy into it, so Jesus transforms us. Just as Jesus transformed the water in the stone pots, the inside of the pots, so when we invite Jesus as the guest into our lives, he gives us the best, he gives us the best joy in our lives. A deep joy, a satisfying joy that cannot be imitated by anything the world offers. Now in the Old Testament, from time to time in the Old Testament, Uh, the prophets would say that whenever the Messiah came, that the sign of the Messiah coming was that there would be an abundance of good things and there would be an abundance of wine. For example, in Amos chapter 9 and verse 13, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and will flow from all the hills. So in this miracle, Jesus is giving them a sign. He is indicating to them. You know the way all those prophecies about the the last days and the Messiah coming and the wine flowing? Well, here it is. Here it is. And he has given them between 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine. Now, that has been converted for me by somebody who says that equals 900 bottles. Okay? That's a good wedding present. 900 bottles. Some years ago, I was um, at Greenbelt Festival, and there was a terrific speaker there, and he was very fond of quoting Aranaeus, and Aranaeus, who was an early church father going way, way, way back uh, into the early days of, of the church, uh, he has this lovely uh, quotation, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully al- alive. I love that. So the more alive we become, the more we display the glory of God. And a good way to start that is by inviting Jesus Christ as the best guest into your life. And Jesus Christ is the best guest to come and to give what he has for us. Too many of us take God's good gifts and we exchange them for unsatisfying things, for bad things, for wrong things. In effect, what we do is we turn wine into water. But Jesus says, I want you to take water and turn it into wine. So Jesus is the best guest. Jesus is the best giver. And thirdly and finally, Jesus is the the all-glorious one. The all-glorious one. In verse 11, second half of verse 11, it says, He thus, Jesus thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the first miracle that John records, and we note that John calls it a sign. This is the first, verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. We said at the beginning of this series, this is what John is doing. He's taking signs, miraculous signs. Signs point to something. So these signs are pointing to Jesus as the miracle worker, as the Son of God. This, the first of his seven miraculous signs that John has in his his gospel, is revealing the glory of God, revealing the glory of God in Jesus. As Jesus took these stone jars and transformed their contents, 
Jesus is making, or sorry, John is making this point. The water and the washings involved with the religious rituals, good as they were, are now replaced by something better. Those six stone jars of ritual washings are now replaced. You don't need them anymore because you have the washing of Jesus Christ. The external washing of the water is now the internal washing of the word of Jesus. He changes everything. He will wash your sin away. Religious uh, rules and regulations are external, but Jesus comes and he cleanses deep within us by the cross upon which he died. He changes the inside of us. Now, all through John's gospel, uh, John will be forcing us into one of two opinions. You know, nobody changes water into wine. They, they don't really. Simon Ponsonby, uh, in one of his recent books, Amazed by Jesus, tells this lovely little story where he was a trainee, uh, a trainee vicar, uh, and one evening, uh, someone gave him a bottle of wine as a gift. And uh, he, in those days, he was wearing a big overcoat, and he put this bottle of wine into his, his overcoat. And after service was over, he was quite hungry, so he went to the local kebab shop to buy a kebab. And in the kebab shop, there were a number of, of soldiers, young guys, and they were jostling each other and joking and so on, a bit rowdy. And there was young, one young guy especially who was, who was rowdier than anything. And... Uh, Simon said to him, oh, you're a bit of a bulldog, aren't you? And the place went quiet. And Simon thought, oh, oh, here we go. And uh, the guy rolled up his sleeve and tattooed on his sleeve or on his arm was a little bulldog. That was a sort of a God moment. And uh, this guy said to Simon, <coughs> I, suppose, I suppose you're going to ch change water into wine now, are you? And he reaches into his pocket, he brings out a bottle of wine. <laughs> he says, 20 minutes ago, that was water. <laughs> and then he began to explain the gospel. And he began to talk about Jesus, who changes water into wine. Because there is no one like Jesus. No one. He is unique. He's the all-glorious one. And he reigns over everything. He reigns over all things. And if you allow him, he will reign over your life. If you allow him to come in, say, Jesus, come in. Be the guest in my life. Give me everything that you have for me. Because you reign. You're the glorious one. In John 1 and 1, uh, sorry, 14, John 1 and 14, where John introduces a lot of the concepts and the ideas that he will unpack in the rest of his gospel. In John 1 and 14, it says, the word became flesh, he, he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. The glory of the one and only. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, I don't know why you're aware of this, but this, I've just discovered this this week. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, on the 6th of January, they celebrate three things. They celebrate Christmas, so their Christmas is later than our Christmas, you maybe knew that. But two other things that they celebrate are the baptism of Jesus and the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And I find that very interesting. Because the Eastern Orthodox Church, Orthodox Church is basically saying, in these, <clears throat> in these three events, we see the uniqueness of Jesus, we see the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, 
being born of a virgin at Christmas time. That's glorious. We see the beginning of his baptism, the beginning of his public ministry that would be glorious. But we also see and we celebrate the first miracle that revealed his glory, which was the changing of water into wine, because Jesus is the glorious one, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and of truth. I'm going to invite the band up. I want them to to sing a song for us. Uh, But today I want to ask you that question. Have you seen the glory? Have you seen the all-glorious one? And have you invited him to reign over your life? There's no better day to do it than today. Than today. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the all-glorious one. The one and only, full of grace and truth. Today I pray through your Holy Spirit that someone, anyone who has not yet seen that, that they will see it today, that they will invite Jesus into their lives as the best guest, as the best giver, as the all-glorious one. So come Holy Spirit. And for those of us who are already Christians and maybe what we've been doing recently is we've been taking wine and turning it into water. And as people look at us, they see a watered-down faith. They see a watered-down witness. They see a watered-down enthusiasm for Jesus. Lord, change us so that we're people of new wine, not watery, that people see the difference that Jesus makes in us. And to you be the glory. And God's people said,